0: Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Today's message comes from our series, 2 Corinthians Strength and Weakness. please open in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. That's where we're going to be continuing today. What we like to do here at Whitefields, we like to study through books of the Bible. So we go chapter by chapter, verse by verse through entire books of the Bible. We've been working our way currently through the book of 2 Corinthians in our series that we call Strength in Weakness. And today we picked up where we left off last week. Today we're going to be looking at chapter 9. So open there in your Bibles, in your Bible apps. And as you do that, please bow your heads with me and let's pray. Lord, thank you that you are a good, gracious, and giving God. Lord, we have been recipients of your grace. and We want to respond to it. So Lord, we ask that as we study your word today, would you by your spirit speak to us? Would you transform us? And would you use this time Lord, to make us more into the image of Christ and the people you want us to become, disciples of you. So Lord, we avail ourselves to you during this time. We give you our attention and we give you our hearts and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, ABC News recently did a survey in which they asked people, what are the top things that they hate spending money on? You can probably guess what some of those things were. First of all, the top answer, of course, was taxes. But beyond taxes, people also said they hate spending money on HOA fees, they hate spending money on surcharges and processing fees, and they hate spending money on tips, right? So these are things that people pay but they, do it, they don't do it gladly or cheerfully. Rather, they tend to do these things a little bit begrudgingly, perhaps even resentfully. In some cases, the only reason why people pay for these things is because they fear the consequences, either legally or socially, that will come upon them if they don't pay these things. But on the other hand, this survey also looked at the things that people enjoy spending money on. And you can probably guess the top thing that people reported enjoying spending money on was themselves, right? And so here's how that worked. They said, especially when it comes to things related to personal growth or like uh, personal enjoyment or self-care, people not only spend an incredible amount of money on these things, but They do so gladly and even with a sense of enjoyment, like the spending process is part of the experience. According to a study done by the University of Michigan, purchasing things for yourself is one of the most effective ways to make you feel happy. So purchasing things for yourself is effective at making yourself feel happy. What happens when you buy something for yourself, they said, in your brain, it releases a spike of dopamine that is 40 times stronger than if you hadn't purchased that thing. It makes you happy. And here's the deal. That sense of happiness you get from buying things for yourself, it doesn't just last for a moment. It can actually last for several days. And that's why people sometimes talk about what they call retail therapy, which means that when you're feeling sad or depressed, you go shopping to make yourself feel better. And according to researchers, it actually works. Like shopping and spending money on yourself Actually makes people feel better. In in fact, in many cases, retail therapy is shown to be more effective than taking drugs or antidepressants for making people feel good. Um, because that rush of chemicals that's released in your brain when you buy something for yourself is so powerful that it lasts for a while, like it carries out for a while. The only problem is because it's so powerful, people easily become addicted to shopping and spending money on themselves because it makes themselves feel so good. But here's the deal. Even if you don't get addicted to shopping, if you just like occasionally go out and buy things for yourself to make yourself feel better, what often happens is another thing we have a name for, and that's what's called buyer's remorse. So buyer's remorse isn't just when you regret buying a certain product. It's what can happen where after a few days, that dopamine high from your latest purchase has worn off, and now you're stuck with the bill for the thing you bought, and you're not feeling so good about it anymore. In some cases, it can even be accompanied not just with a sense of regret, but even with a sense of guilt or shame that you feel for having spent that money on that thing. It's interesting because, you know, we here in the United States, we live in a time and a place where we have more disposable income than any other generation that's ever lived in the history of the world. I was looking at the statistics online And if you even look back 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, we right now have more disposable income than anybody's ever had in the United States in the history of the world. And there are more goods and services available to us than ever before. So here's the thing. If spending money on yourself makes you happy— then we should be the happiest people in the world. How's it working? Is it it going good? Because guess what? Consumer spending is also at an all-time high. And yet, here in the United States, we rank third in the world out of about 200 or so countries. We rank third in the world for the highest rates of depression and anxiety. So if buying stuff makes you feel good, then we should be happy. And yet, apparently, it's not working as well as we thought it was. So why is that? Well, perhaps we can turn to Jesus for the answer to that question. Here's what Jesus said. Famously, he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And you know what? That word blessed or blessed, in Greek, it's the word makarios, which simply means happy. In other words, if you were to read this in Greek, it would sound like this. It is more happy to give than to receive. And what that means is this. Jesus is telling us that true, deep, lasting happiness isn't found in getting more things for ourselves. Instead, true, deep, lasting happiness is found in giving. Now, that strikes us as a bit weird at first, doesn't it? Because I think that most of us would assume that wouldn't I be happier by getting more things for myself rather than giving away the things that I already have, except Research and experience shows us that Jesus is actually right, right? Retail therapy doesn't lead to lasting happiness. It leads to a spike of happiness, but eventually you get a retail hangover from that retail therapy. Sacrificial giving and service, on the other hand, can actually lead to a greater sense of joy and satisfaction in our lives. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 we have a letter here where Paul the Apostle is writing to the Christians in the Greek city of Corinth. And here in chapter 8 and chapter 9, he is writing on the topic of giving. Now, for many people in the ancient world, whether you were a pagan Greek who worshipped at a local shrine, or if you were a Jewish person who worshipped at the temple and attended a synagogue, giving was part of the worship experience, part of the religious experience. But it wasn't necessarily something that you enjoyed. It was more of an obligation, something more akin to paying your HOA dues, right, or or paying a surcharge. You understood that it was necessary to cover the cost for the place. Place of worship, but it was kind of, you know, about as much fun as paying taxes. It was something you do out of a sense of obligation, or perhaps in some cases even out of a sense of, of fear. And I think the same is true for many people today. When it comes to the topic of giving, maybe you do it, but I don't know if it's necessarily something you get excited about. Or maybe you don't do it. Because you don't see the value in it, and maybe that's how not excited you are about it, is that you don't even do it. Here in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, God's Word is challenging us with a radical idea. Here's the idea. Think about how radical this is. What would it take for you to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, but cheerfully and with enthusiasm? That might seem like an impossible task, right? But here in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, we're going to see several things which, if we take them to heart, they can actually transform us into what the Bible calls cheerful givers. So that's the title of today's message, Becoming a Cheerful Giver. And here's what we're going to see in this passage. Every week I give you a sentence. This one's a bit long, but we're going to work our way through it. Here's what it is. Becoming a Cheerful Giver happens... As we realize that generous giving in response to God's grace leads to blessings in our lives, meets the needs of others, and brings glory to God. Now, I realize that's a mouthful. I'd love it if you'd write that down, take a photo of it, whatever you got to do to remember that sentence. And we're going to also use that as our guide and our outline for working our way through this passage here in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. So one more time, then we'll start to break it down. Becoming a cheerful giver happens as we realize that generous giving in response to God's grace leads to blessings in our lives, meets the needs of others, and brings glory to God. So first of all, becoming a cheerful giver. Let's look at verse 1 of chapter 9. Now it is superfluous for me, Paul the Apostle says, to write to you, the Corinthians, about the ministry for the saints. Here in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9... Paul is writing about a special project that he was spearheading back at that time. This project was a project to raise money to support the Christian church in Jerusalem. Now, the reason for that was because at, this, at that time, Jerusalem was suffering a famine, And so Paul had this idea, what if we collected money from all the Christian churches outside of Israel and gave that as a gift to help the believers who are struggling because of this famine in Jerusalem? See, Paul has already talked in chapter 8 about the importance of generosity and giving. And so here, as he begins chapter 9, he says, listen, I know that it's superfluous for me to go on talking about this, and here's why it's superfluous. He says, verse 2, For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. In chapter 8... Paul mentioned how about one year prior to the writing of this letter, when he first reached out to the Corinthians with this idea of raising money to help support the Christians in Jerusalem, the Corinthians responded extremely enthusiastically, right? They were excited. They said, yes, great idea. Count us in. We will definitely contribute to that collection. Now, the Corinthians They were excited about the idea to give financially to support the church in Jerusalem. In fact, Paul had used the example of their excitement as a way of stirring up other churches and encouraging them to contribute to this offering as well. So for example, when Paul would go somewhere, like in Macedonia, for example, he would tell the Christians there, he'd say, hey, we're taking up this offering to help the Christians in Jerusalem. And you know what? The Corinthians are in. They've already said that they're down with this. They're stoked on the idea. They're They're already committed to contributing, so we would love to have you guys contribute to it as well. And the Macedonian Christians heard this, and it caused them to be stirred up by hearing about the Corinthians excitement. It caused them to get excited about this too. Except here's the thing. Even though the Corinthians had said a year prior to this that they were excited about giving and they were going to give, here they are now one year later, and they still haven't actually done it. They're kind of dragging their feet for some reason. And Paul is trying in these opening verses of chapter 9 to tactfully encourage them to follow through on what they said they were going to do. So he says, basically, listen, I know you guys haven't done it yet, but I trust that you're good good for it. I trust that your hearts are in the right place. I know that you're going to follow through. It's interesting that Paul brings up the Macedonian Christians again here. You see, Paul wrote this letter from Macedonia, which, by the way, is northern Greece. You think about the bottom of the Balkan Peninsula, that's Macedonia, the region of Macedonia. So Paul wrote this letter from Macedonia. Now Corinth was in the region historically called Achaia. So Achaia is kind of like southern Greece, as you get into those islands and peninsulas down there in the southern part of Greece. Now we know from the historical writings and from other parts of the Bible that Macedonia was one of the poorest parts of the Roman Empire. And on the other hand, Achaia, where Corinth was located, was actually one of the wealthiest parts of the Roman Empire. So in chapter 8, Paul mentioned how the Macedonian Christians had actually begged Paul earnestly for the favor of taking part in this project by contributing to it financially. Perhaps Paul had told them, hey, listen, if you guys can't afford to give to this, I get it. I know you're poor. I know you don't have a lot. But in turn, they responded and said, no, no, no. Please, let us. Please take our money. We want to be part of this. We want to give. And Paul says there in in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 3, he says, despite the severe test of affliction, despite their extreme poverty, they gave generously out of their abundance of joy. So now Paul is telling the Corinthians, listen, you know what caused the Macedonians to be so enthusiastic about giving? What caused them to do that was because I told them how enthusiastic you guys were about giving. And yet now here we are, a year later, the Macedonians actually did give, but you guys now seem reluctant to follow through on your promise to contribute. It's interesting because what we see here with the Corinthians and the Macedonians is actually something that is more common than we might at first assume or think. You see, researchers have found that in general— As people get more money, they actually tend to become less generous. I think many of us would assume that it would work the opposite way. Like when you don't have a lot, you can't be generous. But when you get more stuff, then people generally become more generous with what they have. Research actually shows the opposite. That statistically, most people, as their income increases or as they become more wealthy, they tend to begin to spend more money on themselves, and they tend to spend less money on being generous and sharing with others in proportion to their income. And yet what Paul is doing here is he's using the example of the Macedonians to inspire the Corinthians, just like how he previously used the example of the Corinthians to inspire the Macedonians. See, what he's doing is something that we're instructed to do in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, where we're encouraged to stir one another up to love and good works. That word stir up, think about that. How do you stir a pot? How do you stir something like paint? You stir it with a stick, right? And then, you know what? That word stir up, in some translations, it's translated as provoke or spur. Think about what a spur is. It's a pointy thing that you use to irritate an animal to get it to move where you want it to go. Right, think about provoking someone. That that often has a negative connotation, doesn't it? But all these three words, stir up, provoke, spur, they all communicate the same thing. Not leaving something to be as it is. So getting in there and causing, you know, pushing someone forward, provoking them, stirring them, uh, you know, uh, spurring them on towards God's will for their life. Listen, I'll tell you this. I love being around people like that. I love being around people who push me forward, who hold me accountable, who encourage me to be better. They say, hey, you committed to doing this thing. They'll encourage me in the things of the Lord so that I don't just get complacent on my own. I need those kinds of people in my life. And my guess is that you need those kind of people in your life too. That's why Christian community is so important. That's why here at Whitefields, we're always encouraging you to join a group and join a team. Why? So you surround yourself with people people who can stir you up to love and good works. And conversely, you're going to stir them up to love and good works as well. That's what we see Paul doing here, spurring them on to love and good works, encouraging them to be cheerful givers, to follow through on what they said they were going to do. And yet clearly, the Corinthians, at least at this point, rather than being cheerful givers, they are what we might call reluctant givers. And maybe some of us can relate to that. So the question is, how do we move from being reluctant givers to being cheerful givers? That leads us to the next part of our sentence. Becoming a cheerful giver happens in response to God's grace. Look at verse 3. It says, I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you're not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. Now at the end of chapter 8, if you remember from last week, Paul told the Corinthians that he was sending them a delegation, a three-man delegation, to help them prepare this offering so that they would be ready, they would be prepared, the offering would be ready, when Paul would later come down to collect it. So so what Paul's doing here in these first five verses of chapter 9 is he's explaining to the Corinthians why he's sending this group of three men to them first, ahead of him before he later comes to collect their donation. And the reason is because Paul wants to make sure that they're ready with this donation by the time he gets down there. Otherwise, it could be really embarrassing for everybody involved. You see, throughout these two chapters, chapter 8 and chapter 9, Paul has been making the point that generous giving is an essential part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Now listen, that is not limited to financial giving. Rather, what we're talking about is this. To be a follower of Jesus means to have a lifestyle that is characterized by giving. You see, we worship a God who so loved the world that he gave his son. We follow Jesus who gave his life in love for us. So to walk in the way of Jesus means to live a life that is characterized by generous giving in all areas of life. We we give our lives to God. We give our worship to God. We give ourselves in service to his purposes. And you know what? Loving God and loving Jesus, you know what it looks like a lot of times? Loving God and serving God, it often looks like loving God. People and serving people. Let me say that one more time. You know what loving God and serving God often looks like? It often looks like loving people and serving people. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus is talking about the day of judgment and how people will stand before God and what God will say to them. And at one point, he says, There will be some people to whom God says this He says, When you gave a glass of water to someone, when you visited the sick, when you fed the hungry, You did those things unto me. In other words, you were serving me. You see, loving God and serving God often looks like loving people and serving people because to give yourself to God means to become a vessel through whom God can do his work in the world. No longer living for yourself, but living for him. And that involves giving. But what motivates us to give, whether that's to give our worship or to give our lives to God, What motivates us to do that is not you know, God pointing at us and saying, this is what you ought to do or this is what you have to do. It's not obligation or coercion. Rather, he motivates us with a much more powerful force. He motivates us with love and grace. In other words, he goes first. He says, look at this. Here's how I've loved you. Here's what I've done for you. Here's my grace to you. And your giving is merely a response to that because how else could you possibly respond? What motivates us to give generously is that we understand that we've been recipients of God's grace. You know what grace is? Grace simply means undeserved favor. Undeserved favor. That's what God has given us. He's given us his undeserved favor. The message of God's grace is that God has given us something that we could never deserve. Forgiveness, salvation, eternal life, a relationship with God, so many blessings every single day. And in response to that amazing grace, what else can we do? But give our lives to God and say, here I am, Lord. Let me be a conduit and a channel now of your grace to others. Through me, I want you to be able to show your grace to others through my life and through my actions. But maybe you wonder, well, hang on a second. If I'm always giving, 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 then pretty soon aren't I going to run out? Won't won't I just end up empty and spent if I'm a person who's always giving? To that question, Paul says this. But first, let me read you our next part of the sentence. Becoming a cheerful giver happens as we realize that generous giving in response to God's grace leads to blessings in our lives. It leads to blessings in our lives. That's what causes us to be cheerful givers when we realize that. See, at the end of verse 5, Paul said that he wanted the Corinthians to give this financial donation as a willing gift, not as an exaction. An exaction is like your HOA dues. It's like that surcharge that you get charged even though you don't want to pay it. It's something that you give, but only because you have to. You give it begrudgingly and resentfully. But here's the question. What could possibly motivate someone to give willingly and cheerfully rather than begrudgingly? Well, first of all, it's because, verse 6, Paul says, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. See, this is just a fact of life. It's a fact, for example, of agriculture. It's a truism, if you will. The more you sow, the more you will harvest. And Paul's saying, listen, that same principle applies in our lives. If you give your material resources for God's kingdom, it will produce a spiritual harvest in your life, and it will produce fruit in the lives of others. So if you want to see more fruit in your life and more fruit for God's kingdom in the lives of others, then one of the ways to do that is to give of what you have. But listen, if on the other hand, you're doing what I know that perhaps I've felt in my heart at times, if you're asking the question, okay, how much is the least amount that I can get away with giving and still be on good terms with God? How much is that amount? And then I'll give that. That kind of attitude, Paul's saying, Like, what's the least I can give and still be okay? That kind of attitude, Paul's saying, it will not lead to very much spiritual fruit in your life, nor will it accomplish very much for God's kingdom. But if you sow generously, then you also reap generously. Jesus put it like this. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. It's kind of like this. If blessings are like ice cream, the question is, do you use the big scoop when serving others, or do you use that little teaspoon, right? Do you use the big scoop or the teaspoon when it comes to serving others if blessings are like ice creams? Because Jesus is, what, Jesus is saying this, whatever scoop you use with others, God will use the same scoop with you, right? That's the, that's the trade-off. If you use the little scoop with others, then God will use the little scoop with you. And if you want to use the big scoop with others, then God will use the big scoop with you. See, when we give, the Bible is telling us that we will reap certain benefits or blessings as a result of giving. Now, some of those blessings will be spiritual. Some of them might be material. In the the book of the prophet Malachi, we read an interesting passage that, that God gave this message to the people of Israel through the prophet. You see, at that time, the people had stopped giving the tithe, which was the allotted amount that the law of Moses required every Jewish person to give to support the work of God through the temple, which was 10% of their income. So the people hadn't been giving the tithe, and God spoke to the people through the prophet Malachi, and he said this, he said, test me in this thing. If you will give in the way I've called you to give, then I will open the windows of heaven and pour down blessing upon you so that you will have no more need. It's an interesting passage for this reason. This is the, one of the only places, if not the only place in the Bible, where God encourages people to test him on something he said, to, to put him to the test and see if what he said is actually true. He encourages people, try it out. See if I'm telling you the truth. And Paul's doing the same thing, essentially, here in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. He's saying, listen, if you will give, you will be blessed. Go ahead. Put it to the test. Try it out. Just imagine if there was a farmer, for example, who had a shed full of seeds. But he was afraid to use those seeds because he's thinking, you know, if I go out there and I just cast all my seeds out in the ground, I'm not going to have any more seeds left. But the fact is, like Paul is trying to show us, those seeds by themselves on their own, they're not going to accomplish very much for you unless you do something with them. If you hoard your seeds, they won't accomplish anything and they won't help you out. But if you sow your seeds in good soil, then you'll get a harvest, which is a lot better than just having a shed full of seeds. And it works the same way with our resources. If you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. If you sow bountifully, you'll reap bountifully. So, he says, verse 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So notice what he says there at the beginning of verse 7. Who should give? He says, each one should give. And then he goes on. But that, that tells us something. It tells us that every Christian is called to get in on this thing of giving. We're all called to be part of this work. This is part of the discipleship program of God for your life. Every Christian's called to be a giver. Why? Well, because money is such a powerful thing, right? It represents your time, your energy, your talents. If you're not careful, money can get its claws into your heart, and it can twist you as a person. And so God calls us to give, proactively, right? To give some of our money to his purposes as a way of training our hearts and training our minds not to be lovers of money or lovers of self, lest we forget that our lives have a greater purpose than just our own comfort and our own entertainment. But then Paul also makes it clear that our giving should be planned and it should be intentional. It should be done, he says, without reluctance and it should also be done not under compulsion. Because it pleases God when we give cheerfully. Now that word cheerful in Greek is the word hilaros, from which we get the word hilarious, right? So he wants us to be hilarious givers. What does that mean? It conveys this idea uh, that we would give with a smile on our face. A smile on our face. You know why? Because that is how God gives to us. You know, I've told you this each week. And so this, this will be the last week that we talk about this topic because again we're just working our way through the text of this letter. But I love this phrase, and I hope you'll take it to heart. Teaching us to give isn't God's way of raising money so much as it's God's way of raising kids. You see, it's part of the discipleship program. He's our heavenly Father, and He wants to raise us up to be certain kinds of people. He's a giving God, and as His kids, He wants to raise us to be giving kids. And how does He give? He gives freely. He gives generously and he gives gladly, freely, generously, and gladly. God isn't teaching us to give because, you know, he's saying, I want you to give like I give so you can be miserable like I'm miserable, right? No, he's teaching us to give so that we can experience the joy that he experiences in giving and the joy that comes as a result of our giving. Now, maybe a person might respond and say, listen, I can see how this is a good thing, even a blessing, but I barely have enough as it is. How can I possibly give? Well, to that, Paul says this in verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He supplies seed to the sower, and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness, for you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Here's what Paul's saying. Listen, if you want to be generous, if you want to get in on this giving thing, then God will provide you with the means you need so you can get in on it. See, in the epistle of James, an interesting passage, James says that sometimes people will ask God to give them more money, and God will not give them the money that they ask for because, he says, he knows that you just want to spend it on yourself. Now, in contrast to that, check out what Paul's saying here. He says, listen, if you want to be generous, God will give you the means to be generous. He'll, he'll give you a way to be generous. As the old saying goes, you know, we used to use this saying a lot when we were missionaries living off of, you know, faith and support. We always used to say, listen, where God guides, God provides. That's what we always say. But you know what? That's true for us as a church as well. You know, we've been taking some steps of faith these last few years and just trusting that if God is guiding, then God will provide. And that's true in your life as well. You know, you shouldn't be limited in following the Lord because of what you perceive to be your lack of current means. Rather, listen, follow God's leading. Take steps of faith. And as God guides you, he will provide for you what you need to do what he's called you to do. That brings us to the next part of our sentence. Listen, the way that we become a cheerful giver is, is first of all in response to God's grace, but it's also as we realize that it leads to blessings in our lives, but also as we realize that it meets the needs of others. That's what can get us excited about it and, and become cheerful givers. Look at verse 12. For the ministry of this service is not only to supply the needs of the saints, but also overflowing in many thanks to God. Generous giving meets practical needs. It's a way that we can be used by God to meet the needs of others and to do meaningful ministry in the world. You know, right now, you you probably heard that we're doing this work in Ukraine where we're providing wood-burning stoves for people whose houses or the infrastructure has been bombed. They've lost heat and electricity. And so what we're doing is we're, we're raising money. We're working with some organizations to provide wood burning stoves for these people so they can survive the winter. So you can just imagine as those people are right now praying, God, is it starting to get colder? How am I going to make it through this winter? How am I going to keep my kids warm? They don't even know it yet, but God is already answering their prayers. And how's he doing it? He's doing it through the giving of us here in this church here in Colorado. That's one of the ways that he's answering some people's prayers. And you know what? That's true in regard, for example, here locally to the Table of Hope Food Pantry that we run here at the church. God is supplying the needs of people through our giving and generosity. You know, Martin Luther had something really interesting to say about this when he was talking about the Lord's Prayer. He said, listen, think about this. Every day, people around the world are praying this prayer. Lord, give me today my daily bread. And Luther asked, well, how does God answer that prayer? He said, he answers it, you know how? Through the work of the farmer, who's growing his grain, through the work of the miller, who takes that grain and grinds it up, through the work of the grocer, who gets that flour and packages it and sells it in his store. All these people, as they do their work, God is using them to answer other people's prayers. You see, in the same way, as we give generously, we're being used by God to supply the needs of others and to answer their prayers. Okay, that brings us to the final part of our sentence. Not only does, do we give in response to God's grace, we become cheerful givers as we realize that it leads to blessings in our lives and it meets the needs of others, but also, and perhaps most importantly, it brings glory to God. It brings glory to God. Look at verse 13. By their approval of this service, they, the Christians in Jerusalem, will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. The ultimate goal of generosity and giving is that God would be glorified. Now, what does it mean to glorify God? We sometimes use this word, but do we really know what it means? Well, here in verse 13, to glorify God means to praise him. So what Paul's saying is that when the Christians in Jerusalem receive this gift, it will cause them to praise God because they will see the genuine faith and love and the work of the Spirit in the lives of the Corinthian believers that motivated them to give. And what this means for you and me is this. We can act in ways. We can do things that will cause people who didn't previously worship God to begin to worship God. Through our actions, we can show people God's heart and help them to believe in him and trust in him and worship him. What an amazing privilege. What an incredible opportunity that through our actions, we could help people to worship, trust, and praise God. What this passage is telling us is that one of the ways we can do that is by being generous, by giving to God's work, by giving to others from what God has given us. You know, it's been said that we make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. And if we want to live lives that bring glory to God, one of the best ways we can do that is through giving. And Paul concludes this whole section on giving with these words in verse 15. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. What is God's gift to us? It's his son, Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This salvation that God has given us, it's a gift. And what that means is, it's not something you can earn, it's not something you deserve, but it is something you must receive. And the way we receive this gift is by believing in him. To believe in Jesus doesn't mean just believing that he was a real person who really lived a long time ago. No, to believe in Jesus in this sense means to trust in him, to rely on him, to trust that what he did for you to save you was enough, and it means to entrust him with all of your life. This gift of salvation, it's so great, Paul says. It's inexpressible, right? There are no words that can adequately express just how great it is. So friends, where our words fall short, may we seek to multiply his praises through every aspect of our lives, including how we give. Because becoming a cheerful giver happens as we realize that generous giving in response to God's grace leads to blessings in our lives, meets the needs of others, and brings glory to God. Would you please bow your heads with me and let's pray. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.